This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Happy New Year from Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. Joining me, as always, Ray, the podcaster. What the hell is going on there, Casey? Good afternoon, Ray. <laughs> Good afternoon. <laughs> How are you, man? Oh, I'm good. I'm How having a time of, oh, I'm having a time of my life over here. How was your New Year's last night? How the fuck would I know? <laughs> It's amateur hour, man. Yeah, you know, yeah. We 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 don't we, 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 don't, do, we don't do amateur hour. Come on, Casey. No. I got three hundred sixty four other days of the year to get fucked up. <laughs> That's right. We're we're having a good time here on uh, yeah. New Year's Day. Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, welcome to twenty twenty three. This is going to be a good year. We're going to get right into uh, this awesome interview with Kevin Van Hentenrick. Right after these words. This is where we do this is where we do the house cleaning, right? Right after the house cleaning. Yeah, that's what I thought. Check out all the other great shows on our network, the Deluxe Edition Network at deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Did I say that right? Deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Yeah, that's what it says. And the podcast of the month this month is all of them. <laughs> all of them. I'll have to figure yeah. that out and add it to the show. No, nah, we're, we're recording dude, a little early. Dude, no, nah, let's just do all. Let's do all of them for, to start the new year. Let's do all, all right. of them. All right. Check out all of the shows on the network at deluxeeditionnetwork.com. And, and and I'm gonna say I'm gonna say we'll do the promo for all of them at the end of this episode because if we do it up front it'll be way too long. So can we do it at the end of this one? Sure. All right. See, see, that's called that's called the the, the art of the deal right there. If you'd like to make a deal with us, head over to <laughs> Patreon.com/slash/DeluxeEditionPod or head over to our YouTube channel and uh, join the channel. Well, you can join for as low as two ninety nine a month. I will send you the episode immediately after we record, and we have been cranking them out. Mm-hmm. So uh, come, come get some. Uh, if you want to buy a t shirt, go over to whatamaneuver dot net slash collections slash deluxe dash edition. If you'd like to find us on Instagram or Twitter, you can do so by going to deluxe edition pod. Mm-hmm. And you can find all of our other shows over at deluxeedition.show. 
Yeah. And Ray, before I uh, have my surprise here, <laughs> please tell everyone where they can find you. You can find me at the Ten Cent Beer Night Podcast. I am the host of that thing. And you can also go to T Public. Uh, 10 Cent Beer Night Podcast, and not only can you get my gear right now, you can get Deluxe Edition and Barrel Age Flicks official bootleg merchandise. <laughs> official bootlegs. Goddamn right. It's amazing. And Ray, to start yeah. this new year, yes, we are sponsored today by <laughs> oh. GetSlicks.com they got all your uh, winter hat needs over there. GetSlicks.com. And uh, tell them that Deluxe Edition sent you, and they will uh, give you a little discount over there. We're not quite set up just yet with the code, but uh, that, that will be coming soon. But these these hats are fucking awesome. This one uh, says stay high. Uh, it's great, great hat, like really good quality. Mm. So check that out. And uh, now... Our show with Kevin Van Hentenrick. Let's do this shit. Kevin, how are you, man? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Where Where are you guys located? Where? I'm in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. And I am in the uh, suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. Excellent. Excellent. I've, I've done uh, Wasteland a few times. Yes. And you're up in uh, upstate New York, right? Near Woodstock, yeah. We had 10 inches of snow the other day. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> what, took you up, what took you up there to, to that area? My partner at the time had property up here, and I was about to lose my studio in Tribeca. And mm. so we came up here camping on my, uh, my old motorcycle, and it was, it's spectacularly beautiful up here. And uh, we we said, why don't we live up here? And neither one of us could figure a reason not to. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful up there. Are you how close? I'm sure you're familiar with Levon Helm, right? Yeah, yeah. How close to you are? How close to you is the barn? <laughs> uh, ten minutes. Oh, that's ah, awesome. Yeah, it's right nice. kind of around the corner. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty familiar with that area. I've been to the barn uh, twice. I saw a couple bands there. I saw the weight there. Uh-huh. And I saw um, Willie Nelson's son there, Lucas Nelson. Nice uh, play there. Yeah, it was really awesome. Excellent. And then uh, I've also been to Hunter Mountain, which uh-huh. is a little bit further up the road. But when I first started researching for you, uh, I found out that you are a sculptor and that you have a, a beautiful sculpture of rip van winkle there at hunter mountain i do thank you, um, thank you. tell us about that because I, I i'm like pissed off at myself because i've <laughs> been to the hunter mountain uh i've been to uh, mountain jam twice and somehow i missed this rip van winkle i don't like where is it exactly on the property because well are you a skier um no 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 okay there's uh there's a a, a run called k27 which is an expert run. And right near the top of it is the zipline jump-off point. And it's just like a few minutes down this forest path from the jump from the uh, zipline launch pad. Um, that was a project. Um, 
I knew David Slutsky, who is one of the owners of Hunter Mountain uh, through the local arts council. And he knew I was a stone carver. And he said a few times, you know, we should do a, a Rip Van Winkle at the mountain. And uh, I don't know, the third, third time he said it, maybe I called his bluff and turned out he was serious. <laughs> so in those days, uh, they had the, the summer music festival program was 40 some days. It was all, all summer long. And um, so we figured it would take five years. However, as soon as we started it, they started cutting back the number of festival days. And by the time we finished it, 14 years later, uh, they were down to 12 festival days per season. And blue stone's a medium hardness stone, and I don't get a whole lot done in 12 days. Yeah, wow. So that it was an eight-ton piece of stone when you started, right? Yes, was it just there, or I mean, you said well, it's like at the at the top of this mountain. So how did it? How did it? How did you have it delivered there? If it well, wasn't there, David and I drove all over the mountain looking for some natural stone that was already there, and the problem was uh, the cliff faces that had been exposed for for a long time, probably since the last ice age, uh, were badly weathered. And everything else that was exposed had been dynamited by the crews to make the ski runs. So we ended up having to bring in a block of stone from a local quarry. Um, we worked for the first half of the project, five or six years, down at the bottom by the lodge. Um, and it, it happened um, that they had to replace the cable on one of these lifts. Now you're talking about one inch braided steel cable and there's miles of it, you know, so it's a, it's a heavy duty industrial process. So they had a, a machine big enough to lift it at both the bottom and the top at the same time. So we decided to just go for it. And, uh, uh, we put a, a, like a foot of soft gravel in the bed of a truck Put this, put the half finished piece on in that, bedded it in the gravel, strapped it down, and they drove it up the hill. It, oh my god! It was much less crazy than I thought it was. Yeah. Than I thought it would be. Um, what was interesting was um, getting the stone into the location, which is right out on the edge of a cliff overlooking the valley. It's a really cool spot. And next time you're in Hunter Mountain, you should check it out. Yeah, I'm definitely going to. Can you take this? So if you take the ski lift up, like from the lodge, if you take the ski lift up, will that will that get you closer? You're within about five or six minutes walk of the piece. Great. All and right. If you ask the lift guys, they will uh, direct you. And if you let me know, you know, if I can, I'll join you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, so, so when you moved it at the when you moved it from the bottom to the top, it was significantly lighter than when you had started because you had already started on the project a little bit, right? Yeah, I think we were maybe down to six and a half tons in that <laughs> range. It's, it's hard to tell, sure, um, but 
we taken a little bit off of it. It's still a big rock. Yeah. Even, <laughs> even now finished, it's it's still a a, a large object. Uh, yeah. So it's hmm. going to stay right where it is for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. If uh, if you're only listening, I highly recommend you uh, coming over to our YouTube channel because I'll add pictures into all this. Uh, if that's okay, Kevin. If I yeah, if you have a, the... a, a there's a shot of it. Uh, there's a shot of it on my website. Great. KevinVanH.com. <laughs> awesome. So by the time Basket Case uh, came along, Kevin, you had already decided that you were finished with acting. <laughs> I, I've heard you say that a bunch, but I've never heard the reason as to why you were were finished with acting. I was in my second year at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And uh, Annette and I went up to... Um, uh, Little Carnegie Cinema, which was around the corner from Carnegie Hall. And in the 70s, it was uh, like an art house. So you could see like old Ingmar Bergman films or Fellini films. And they were playing an old Ken Russell film called The Savage Messiah, which is about a real sculptor who lived in the time of World War I. And um, in the course of the film, they showed... You know, the actors doing the sculpture, but they showed a close-up of a real carver's hands working a block of marble. And and you can hand-carve marble fairly quickly. And I was so turned on by the idea and to the idea of a rock as a plastic medium, uh, I became kind of obsessed with that. And so around the corner from the academy on 30, 30th Street was the sculpture house, which was a sculpture supply place. So I started walking by and looking in the window, trying to figure it out. And then when it worked up my nerve enough, I, I went in and walked around like I knew what I was doing and left. When I, when I had what I hoped was enough money saved up and my nerve worked up, I went in and asked some poor sales girl every question I could imagine, bought three chisels and a hammer, went and found a rock in the East Village, and I set up a workbench under what's now called the High Line, which is an elevated railroad track um, in the like 30th and 11th Avenue vicinity. In those days, it was a completely abandoned, derelict neighborhood. It was me and the girls working 11th Avenue. That was all that was down there. <laughs> and I set up a workbench under the railroad track, so I'd be out of the rain and stuff. And the the first moment that I, I touched steel to stone, I had this incredible revelation that this was what I was meant to do. Do, do you know how many um, sculptures you've done to this point, and do you have a favorite? Well, the Rip Van Winkle is pretty pretty up there. Also, the, the Jill McCrudden Memorial, which is a rearing horse and rider, and Jill is on her uh, Jill is on Star, her horse in her wedding dress, and it's rearing up. Those are those are those are two of my favorites. Yeah. How, how big is that one? That one's uh, seven feet tall, but it's actually less. It's six tons. Wow. Um, <laughs> just just a yeah. little bit less. Yeah, he's just throwing out six tons. Like, yeah, it's, it's only six tons. <laughs> that's well, a that's a lot of weight. That's that's big. Kids can't come and tip it over or steal it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, But was there something that happened with the acting that 
that you wanted to, you were like, fuck this. I'm not acting anymore. I don't want to do it. Not really. I, I was just overcome by my interest in, in stone carving. See, see, this reminds me of the first time I saw the Ramones. Like, I saw lightning in the room. And I knew immediately that I wanted to be a musician. Like, and if, I, I kind of think that's what he's describing. The first time he put metal to stone, he saw lightning in the sky and everything just opened up to him. Like, that's what he just described. That's kind of the same feeling I got. The first time I saw the Ramones, that's how I felt. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. An epiphany. A, uh, yeah. A life-changing event. And that moment powers me still to this day. That's awesome. When I so when I first um, started looking at your, so what I do, this is my process. <laughs> when I want to interview someone, uh, I'll look at their website and I'll just look at, you know, look over things, and then I'll contact them. And I, I don't do any real research until, you know, that that they, they approve to be on the show. Um, so when I first saw the pictures of the the sculptures and everything on your website, I thought that you were actually mixing concrete and like molding all of these things together. But then I, I, you know, when I started researching, I found out that you're actually taking these pieces of rock and carving them to, to look, which is even more amazing. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's just some of the stuff that you do is, is mind blowing. Um, Tell us, tell us some of the tools that that you're using. Well, I I want to digress just a little bit. The other the other part of my interest in stone carving is this material, uh, bluestone, which is what we have here in the Catskill Mountains, is a, a um, relatively young age in geological terms. It's only 360 million years old. And the, <laughs> the, the scratches that we make in it has the potential to last thousands of years outdoors with no maintenance. Uh, long after everything I've touched has been forgotten about, these objects may still be around. I, I'm, I'm. That just blows me away. Yeah. So that's 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 a, a big part of my interest. The other thing is, um, we, we respond to what I call the presence of a material. For example, uh, plastic. You know, as a cheap man-made. Uh, presence. Um, glass is a little more substantial, but it's still man-made. Um, but everyone, you know, you see a, an unusual stone on the path or on the beach, you pick it up to look at it. We respond to that. And it's because of the age and the the way this material was created. You're talking about hundreds of millions of years of a mammoth pressure and heat to form these stones, granite and limestone and bluestone and marble. And I think that's what we respond to. That's a diamond or an emerald. You know, these things are created deep in the earth under this ungodly pressure and heat over millions and millions of years. So that's, that's I think, why, why I respond to stone. Yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Ned. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's awesome. I love the. I love how like you. You can definitely tell how passionate you are about yeah. about the the field. 
I was because you're all self, you're you know you're self taught as well. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say it almost sounds like it's sacrilegious to carve it. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. Um, you know, well, uh, but but don't get me wrong. I would, you know, I'm all for carving it, but there's a moment where you look at it and go, "Should I do this?" Well, when you're working in stone, you have to. It is a little bit of a dialogue. You have to be sensitive to the stone. For example, I don't, I can't remember if there's any uh, overhead shots of the rip in the the website, but. If you were to stand over the rip and look down on him, he is uh, closer to the back of the block rather than in the center of it. And the reason for that is we roughed it out with a huge kind of a a 90-pound drill that you see them breaking up the pavement with. Um, (laughs) And right where the head was going to be, there was a softball-sized lump of clay uh, which uh, bluestone being a sedimentary stone, you find stuff in it, fossils, uh, bits of clay, you know. So we had to move the whole figure back into the stone by about eight or ten inches to get <laughs> past that deposit of clay there. <laughs> so you have to you have to listen to the stone. It's um, a good example is. Um, so after we moved up to the top, um, I would always try to go as early as possible because the lifts wouldn't open till I think, 9 or 10. So if I got there at 7, uh, I would have a couple of hours undisturbed before people started coming up. And uh, so one day I'm there, and it's fairly early, and this, re- this guy's really plastered already. And I'm sitting there with... Uh, a book and two files and all my papers and a tape measure and a pencil. And I'm just looking at the stone, you know, trying to figure out what the hell was I thinking, you know? And he comes down the path and says, ah, taking a break. Huh? <laughs> but in fact, no, the actual material removal with a jackhammer and a carbide tip chisel is, is fairly rudimentary. It's uh, technology from the 1890s. The trick is to know which material to remove and which to leave. Yeah. Um, Going back to what Ray said about the, um, you know, almost, I forget the wording that he used uh, about not sacrilegious, sacrilegious about not cutting. Has there ever been something that you've found and were like, this is, this is too good to, to cut like this? Yeah. Often that will, um, for example, uh, uh, if I'm doing a relief piece, for example, that's a, one side of a stone. And often I will feature the good side not to be carved. So the sculpture, the, the intrusion, my intrusion into the stone is on the, the, the B side. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Um, Oh, shit, I have. I had a question, but I forgot. Um, I don't. This remember. is so cool, man. Thank you for this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No, this is no, this is our pleasure, man. Yeah, big fan. Absolutely. Man. Well, before we get into, uh, well, no, tell us about the tools. You said they date back to the eighteen hundreds. Um, 
so i've seen i've seen you using some air chisels uh i mean were they they weren't using air chisels back then were they yeah the compressed air technology is from the 1890s oh wow yeah i'm sure our our tools are better now than they were (laughs) when uh and i i don't think they had carbide tips then um like you get a, a a circular saw blade that's carbide tip lasts longer. So the blue stone is really a blue gray sandstone and that sand functions just like sandpaper. So while you can carve it with a plain steel chisel, like a hardware store chisel won't hold Hmm. the edge very long. So all all the chisels are carbide tip, which can also then be used on the real hard stones like granite and basalt. Okay. Hmm. I did remember my question. So, <laughs> so let, let's just say for the Rip Van Winkle, for instance, because I'm familiar with that that piece. Do you are you just seeing that in your head and carving it like as you go, or are you making like pencil marks where to cut here, where to carve here? Like how how do you envision how to do that? Well, first of all, the Rip Van Winkle incorporates two moments from the story into one visual. Um, The moment where he wakes up and the moment where he realizes his predicament um, are both presented in the, the Rip Van Winkle sculpture. Because, again, you have an object that may last thousands of years and... How many folk tales from a thousand years ago do you know? You know, so the piece has to work independent of all support material. Um, um, what was the what was the other part <laughs> of the question? <laughs> I'm sorry. So are are you how are you are you marking making any marks on the stone as you're carving? Like how are you envisioning? Yes. How to so, how to do it? Um, like the story with the guy that came out and thought I was taking a break. Uh, generally, the way I work is I'll I'll lay out two or three hours worth of work. You know, I want to take this out of here. I'm going to take this down and push this back in. And then I'll put on the gear. I'm wearing all kinds of safety gear, you know, dust mask, <laughs> all bent. And... Do and I'll that will be laid out with either a lumber crayon or a, you know a, a carpenter's pencil right directly on the stone. And so once I've got the gear on and the tool running, you don't want to be trying to think about it. So like you don't decide which trees to cut down with the chainsaw running in your hand. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, lay out uh, some work and then accomplish that. And by then my hands are trashed and. I'm ready for a break anyways. Uh, so sure. repeat. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I so I've recently built uh I'm a roofer um uh, by trade and uh I recently built these for my um sister in law. I built these like fairy houses on these stumps. Um really? and I'll post pictures in, in the video here for everyone to see. But uh yeah, basically the same thing. Like, you know, you you I was just making it up as I went and I just uh would you know take it take a break, step back for a while, smoke a joint and try and figure things out and continue yeah. on from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's what I would tell people, you know, uh, when they would ask how, how I'm doing it, I would say, no idea, I'm making it up as I go along. But with stone, the, the process moves a lot slower. And that's one of the other things I like about working in stone. Um, like, a, like a good sauce, the longer it's on the back burner, the better it turns out. And I always tell that to, if I have a client who wants a job, the longer I have to think about it, to consider all the aspects of it, the better it will be. Um, because there's things, you know, you can look at something for weeks and then suddenly oh, shit, look at that, you know, some new aspect of it will occur to you. So, yeah. 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 Very cool. Yeah, I've worked with um, very little stone. Like, I, I've done a lot of slate roofing. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, so I yeah. did a lot of slate slate work there. And uh, it irks the shit out of me when I see slate roofs being torn off because people don't know how to replace the slate you know it's a it's a dying trade and not yeah, yeah. a lot of people aren't uh learning anymore yeah and i'm not doing it anymore i can tell you that i'm not getting up there to do it. i watch people work now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah we were all younger once yeah exactly uh, well, Kevin, before we get into, uh, of course, this is going to go into a uh, basket case as, uh, as it always will. I just watched you in a movie called Rapturious. Rapturious? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Tell us about that. How did that come about? You were really good in that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, geez, I don't You know, he saw me on Facebook, I think, and asked if I wanted to be in this film. Debbie Rochon's in it. Joe Bob Briggs is in it. Yeah, yeah. I was really surprised to see yeah. uh, to see Joe Bob in that. Um, and I was I saw in the in the very opening of it that Artie Lang is an executive producer of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the the young guy that played the rapper was fantastic. He's just yeah, uh, amazing. yeah. It's a really good uh, little low budget movie. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. fun to do. Fun, you know, get to hang out with Joe Bob a little bit. And, yeah. Very cool. One other movie that I saw you in uh, was, uh, let's see, Dry Bones. You did really good in that too. The the opening scene with uh, you kind of, it's kind of a little creature under the bed that gets you in that. Gregory Lamberson, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's an interesting um, factoid about Greg is in Basket Case Two when. Uh, Bilal takes over Dwayne, and Dwayne is wheeling him out of the hospital. The, the, the basket, you can see the basket moving around. That's yeah. Greg in the basket. <laughs> Get the hell out of here, really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he wants that story told. I, I'm, <laughs> anyways, the, you know, we all That's start cool. somewhere. But yeah, thank, cool. yeah, that was another one that was fun to do. Uh, very. He was He was willing to cast me in something other than the the Dwayne nerdy kind of a character. Yeah. So that was fun. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, for anyone that hasn't seen those movies, uh, Rapturous and uh, Dry Bones, definitely check them out with Kevin. Really good. Yeah, I had Greg on. Uh, I talked to Greg a long time ago on another podcast that I did years yeah. ago. Going back to Joe Bob. You're working with Joe Bob. So um, he's he was pretty instrumental in 
the reason for basket case being being out there right so um i just watched it on uh his full marathon the the other day i refreshed my brain on it um he actually was at the Cannes film festival and saw this and then was waiting for it to come back to the states so he could show it in texas and then found out that the distributors had cut a lot of the well, all of the gore out, right? And and made it into like a comedy film. And he said he wasn't going to show it unless they added everything back into the movie. And when he's telling this story on the drive-in, like he he gets choked up about it. Like he's he's he, yeah. he's very tied to this movie. He he loves this movie. He he helped make Basket Case what it is today. Because he wouldn't show the cut version. So Frank snuck him an uncut version, which people liked. And so the distributor just very quietly with no fanfare just started switching the cut version with the uncut version. And then it started to take off. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very cool. So. I tried to I tried to write down a bunch of questions here that you haven't been asked about Basky Case ah. before <laughs> because um we we've talked to a bunch of you know actors that get asked the same questions constantly over and over again so um we and then we also have a bunch of uh, fan questions as well so um the very first time we see you when you're walking with the basket in Basky Case the f- very first one uh, the the drug dealer on the side of the road. Uh, was he just like I feel like he that was that scene was so real because I've seen guys like that at festivals and stuff. <laughs> like, was he an actual drug dealer or was he was he an actor? No, he was an actor. Really? Um, yeah, he was very good. Um, we we that was kind of guerrilla filmmaking because those those shops in Times Square that's the old. Times Square, and I'm glad we got some of it in the film, but they weren't happy about us pointing cameras at their storefronts. So we kind of, we were threatened and shit, you know, so we had to kind of just go for it and run. Um, but yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. the uh, So like a lot, of, you mentioned like guerrilla filmmaking, a lot of that was done um, without permits, right? Like I mean, there wasn't enough money to be buying permits for everything, right? Like, for instance, you running down the street naked during the dream sequence. (laughs) Like, I imagine there was no permit pulled for that, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) But again, that was Tribeca in uh, 78 or 9 when we shot that scene in, like, February, the coldest moment of the year. (laughs) Look at that crazy white boy. (laughs) The beauty of it is... In those days, after rush hour, Tribeca was deserted. There was no traffic. There was nothing. So we st- swept the streets to make sure there was no glass or shit. And we had a heated vehicle on each end and just went for it. <laughs> it's amazing. One of the fa- Have you heard the story of, of why that scene is in the movie? Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I haven't heard it. No, t- tell us. So... The script, the original script called for uh, Belial running through the street. And <laughs> as soon as we got the effect, we realized not even close. No way. You know, <laughs> what, we're going to put him on a skateboard and pull him. <laughs> so 
Frank was really bummed out about that and and spent some time, you know, a matter of weeks thinking about it. And one night he calls me up and he said, I, I figured this out. And even though running through the streets naked wouldn't have been my first choice, it's the perfect solution to that scene. <laughs> That's Frank Hennenlotter. Yeah. That's all. And you had no problem doing it? It was a drag, but hmm. you know, um, it's 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 about the total. You, you hmm. want to keep in mind the total, and uh, like a good script or good dialogue between the characters, if it advances the story, if it works in the story arc, yeah, that's that's what I do. Now, yeah. you and Frank. Um, before that movie was made, did you already know each other? Because it's easier for someone you already know to convince you to do something really dumb, like running through the streets naked. Did you know him before the movie? Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I was at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and Ilsa, who plays the social worker with the glasses, yeah. he was the uh, registrar, uh, assistant registrar at the Academy, and Ruth Newman, who plays our aunt, was the registrar. <laughs> and so, uh, anyways, one day Ilsa says to me, I know this guy that makes films. You should meet him. So I said, okay. So I went and met him. We hung out in his apartment in the West Village a little bit. And just bullshitted. And uh, he gave me three extra parts in the film prior to Basket Case, which is called Slash of the Knife. I uh, play... Uh, an inmate in an institution, a tall woman in a wedding, <laughs> and something with railroad track. <laughs> I forget the third one. But he liked the way I worked. I was professional, you know, and mm -hmm. I was always on his case about using acting students, you know, mm -hmm. the experience, the work, the real, blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know, six or eight months later, he calls me up and he has this idea for a film. And I, what I like to hear it. So uh, on the spot, he 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 talks through the entire film, doing doing the parts, <laughs> the action, and the, the shots, and the, the feeling, the vibe. When Frank does a pitch, it's uh, he's a hundred percent into it. Ah. And, uh, you know, uh, to play two entities that consider themselves <laughs> one entity—that's an actor's dream. Yeah, who played young Dwayne? I mean, because the casting for that was—I mean, he looked like he really looked a lot like you. Um, that was probably Edgar. I don't know. Um, I, I met him briefly when we were in Haynes Falls doing those shots, but um, I didn't know him. I don't. I don't know who got him. Okay. Yeah. They, I mean, it was it was great. Great casting. Whoever. Mm -hmm. Whoever did it. Um, so this, the very uh, the scene in the first one where Belial is destroying the room, um, <laughs> where he goes crazy, uh, is that stop motion or how, how did how did they do that that scene? That's because that's pretty wild. Because there's I mean, they, there's nothing around him. It's just him going, <laughs> going around the room. Yeah, it was uh, Frank's foray into stop motion, and he was not. He, initially, he wasn't satisfied with it, and uh, uh, he said that he he threw the can of film across the room and just let it sit there for 
days or weeks. And then suddenly it occurred to him it, it was kind of funny. And so then they kind of just went more in that direction. Um, I'm not sure why I have this all the way down here. I should have asked this at the beginning of the show, but uh, I've heard you say in other interviews that uh, you were a shy kid and that's what got you into acting. Um, our, the guy we talked to on Christmas, Sam Benjamin, he had, he said the, the exact same thing. Um, like I was a shy kid and that was the last thing that I ever wanted to do was get in front of people. Like I remember I hated, hated, hated talking in front of people in front of class. So like what made the, like what, what turned the switch? Cindy Aldrich. So I'm in, I, I, I don't know, ninth or 10th grade English class. And at the end of the class, we're all leaving. And I'm, I got my eye on Cindy, you know, I have no idea what to do. But, and I hear her talking or the teacher asks her how the play is going. And they're, they're chatting about that. So then, ah, I'll be in place and then I can meet Cindy. So I went and auditioned for one. I can't even remember the name of the first one anymore, but um, <laughs> the play previous to that, the one Cindy was in, turned out to be her last one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. So you acted then all, did you act all the way through high school then and plays and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Where did you grow up at? Uh, that was Ferndale High, Ferndale, Michigan, uh, suburbs north of Detroit. Okay. So you're around the, the age of our, our previous guest, George, that, that did a little um, high school acting. He told us, and I asked Sam this too, because he, he <laughs> went to a, a boys' school, but did you ever hear of actors or you know kids going to other schools and auditioning for plays? Was no. that was that a thing back back then when you were not in high school though there were um I do remember there were one act festivals and uh all the schools would have their own one act festival and then the winners of those would go to other schools and and compete in other schools one act festivals we did that so I was in a number of one act plays in other high schools Okay. Do you like, um, do you ever, do you ever go back and do any uh, stage acting? Um, I did for a while. Yeah. I did the illusion here in Woodstock. Uh, Michael Christopher was the, um, was the director on that. That was fun. Um, 17th century French tragedy comedy with wigs and boots and sword fighting the whole bit. That was fun. Um, they built a stage out behind the Bearsville Theater. So you have you have the woods behind the stage and the the creek running along the side. Except nobody nobody thought about the dew. And mm -hmm. we're wearing these boots and supposed to be doing sword fighting. And you know what? As soon as it got dark, that stage got really slippery. <laughs> Slick. Yeah. Oh boy. I know exactly where that Bears the that Bearsville Theater is. It's a, a neat little place. Um, all right. Did I miss anything, uh, Ray? That you that you'd like to get in there before we bring? Uh, the only thing I would, 
Yeah, the only thing I would ask is, um, do you have anything, you know, acting-wise coming up or sculpting-wise that you're doing currently? Um, we produce a free stone carving class every mm-hmm. summer on the mountaintop. Uh, and you should come to that if you can get up to Hunter. It's usually um, late August, early September in that mm-hmm. vicinity. And we have a website for that, too. I don't have a thing, but it's freehscs.com. That stands for the Hunter Stone Carving Seminar, freehscs.com. And that there's a lot of pictures and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of shots of students from previous classes. Uh, this year was our 15th year for that. Wow. wow. Yeah, we've taught hundreds of people. Uh, to carve bluestone and it has, as young as four I, we had a four-year-old carving with an air hammer wow so, yeah it's not as hard as people think you know they mistake the the hardness of the medium for difficulty working it when primitive peoples did this with like a sharp rock held in their hand <laughs> we have much better tools yeah um, and I'm, I imagine that you get a lot of uh, your fans also come up there just to hang out with you for the day, right? We've had a few of them. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool, Kevin. And I will post all of the links in the uh, description of the of the podcast as well to wherever you're listening on YouTube or Spotify or wherever people are listening. All right. Are you ready for the fan questions, Kevin? Sure. All right. <laughs> let's bring Tony on. Tony, how are you, man? Hey, doing really good. Thanks, Casey, Ray, for having me on. Thanks, yeah, Kevin. Yeah. I'm a big fan of yours. I was really excited uh, to be invited to do this. So oh, thank you. Um, once I heard who the guest was, <laughs> I was like, yes, Casey, please, uh, please let me come on. So I'll try to keep it brief. I'll try to keep uh, uh, the couple of notes that I'm taking here, hopefully, are going <laughs> to make sense when I say them out loud. So um you know, just speaking of the seminar, I had actually written that down. That's really amazing thing that you, you know, you put that on. And uh, that sounds like a really awesome time. What I was going to lead into with that was one of the things that I found uh, made me a big fan of Basket Case and of yours was like your enthusiasm uh, for that movie. And now doing this interview, I realized that that is an enthusiasm you bring to everything that you do. Uh, I think that's really amazing. And I was going to mention that seminar is, is, a, is a big part of that. Um, well, you know, we, there's, there's, there's two things that we humans respond to. They are confidence and just I blanked out on the second one, but, you know, uh, Memory, energy, confidence and energy. And that's, that's what they teach us in acting school. You know, if you're going to make a mistake, make it really big. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the, the question I had wanted to ask uh, to you, I was really interested watching Basket Case and Brain Damage and that kind of area on the Bowery um, and that whole neighborhood. Uh, what was it like just, you know, living in New York in that area at that time? I mean, uh I think just the rest of us who are not old enough or didn't live there see that in movies and it just, you know, how close to that was, was what you guys were uh, living, uh, living there every day. Yeah. What you see is what it was like. 
Um, New York City in the mid-70s was at the bottom of an economic trough. And even in the late 70s, when we filmed Basket Case, it was it was rough and it was sleazy. You know, um, there were places where you didn't walk unless you had weapons or a large group. You know, um, I remember hearing pitched gun battles in the East Village in those days. So, yeah, I, it was it was it was weird. Uh, originally. The Hotel Broslin was going to, Frank had picked out a place that that suited what he was looking for. That was just kitty corner, like diagonally across from Madison Square Garden. And we were we were going there and we were setting up for something. And there were like bums hanging around saying, you know, if you give me 50 bucks, I won't steal your cables <laughs> kind of a thing. So we realized that wasn't going to work. And ended up, the Hotel Broslin was a composition of several locations, including a, a set that we built in Uji's Loft. I, if you guys are looking for a sad uh, documentary to watch, the documentary <laughs> on the Sunshine Hotel um, is yeah is amazing and heartbreaking. So uh, that uh, that whole that whole time period in that area and stuff, yeah, it's always fascinating to me. So. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Tony. Absolutely, guys. Thanks again. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Our next fan question here is from Turnpike James. Do you have any pets? And if so, what kind and names, please? <laughs> no, no pets. You know, no after, pets. after having two kids, uh, I don't want to take care <laughs> of anything. <laughs> Not even All right. <laughs> uh, Donnie Morgan would like to know. Do you consider yourself an actor who sculpts or a sculptor who acts? Well, uh, now a sculptor who acts. Yeah. Uh, okay. Definitely. All right. Tim Earnshaw would like to know which scene that you acted in made you laugh the hardest, be it on set or viewing later. Oh, the uh, the scene where I have to throw a blanket over Terry and throw her out into the hall. That has <laughs> always cracked me up. My favorite part is in the beginning when the lady is walking you up the steps. <laughs> and she just stops and turns around and goes back down the stairs. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I crack up every time I see that part. It's so good. All right, uh, the Graveyard Club podcast, and they are a part of our network, the Deluxe Edition Network. Um, what is your opinion on the different vibe and the direction of the two sequels? That's that's a great question. Um, so we we had an actual budget for the second and third film, something that was completely unheard of in the first film. <laughs> Um, first one was shot in 16. Um, there's a thing called, uh, in the film era, there was a thing called short ends. So if somebody, you know, needs to buy, I don't know, I don't know how big the roles were to start off with, but let's say they need 40 minutes of film and there's, you know, three minutes of film left, they would sell those as short ends at a discount. So 
And and I think uh, part of that financial uh, problem is why the film turned out so nice. Because I'm I was trained as a theater actor, a stage actor, and we like rehearsal. And Frank would say, we've got film for one take, so we're going to rehearse this until everybody's good, till the lights are good, till the sound is good, till everything is perfect. And then we're going to film one take of it. And I like working that way. So um, I've completely digressed away from the question. I'm sorry. No, all good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your your opinion on the different vibe and the direction that the two sequels went in. Right, right, right. So in the second and the third one, we had actual budget. And so that changes the way you work. And also... Frank and Gabe decided that it would be a great idea to have all these freaks. You should have seen the the effects shop for those two <laughs> films. They were crazy. These guys I are crazy. A lot of the budget went towards a lot of those effects, right? The the practical effects for those creatures. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then of course the legendary Annie Ross. She was yeah. amazing to work with, and. Uh, Personally, my favorite is the first one because of the way the way we worked. For one thing, um, if you if you can spend three or four weeks preparing for one scene, you feel pretty pretty ready for it. You know, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's different. It's a different type of film. Um, if I were ever to do a fourth one, uh, I think I would want to switch back to 16 millimeter film hmm. and and do it the same way we did the first one. Ah, gorilla style. I like that. Yeah, yeah. That's actually yeah. in my in my notes here. We're gonna we're gonna get to that. So don't say any more <laughs> about that just yet. Um, Shannon Wellen, uh, who runs. Shannon, <laughs> how you doing, Shannon? Yeah. You know, you know, Shannon, he runs the Basky case uh, Facebook page. Of course. Uh, he wants to he wants to know. He says uh, basket case was shot in chunks. How many different times did you have to show up? And for how long did you have to be dedicated to the role as Dwayne? Oh, we spent almost a year filming it. Uh, we'd work on weekends or the evenings. Um, you know, the process was we'd film something. He would put together, Frank would put together a rough assemblage, show it to someone, get more money, and repeat. He did that endlessly. Um, uh, Frank would say, you know, we need this, or we need a toilet. We'd hop in Edgar's van and drive around the East Village to find a toilet on the street. (laughs) Or uh, if you look at the room, both Dwayne's room and Casey's room are the same room, just redecorated. (laughs) And you notice there's like a pipe going up in the corner by the bathroom. That's the cardboard center of a, a, a roll of cloth that we found in the garment district. <laughs> That's awesome. Things you do, things you. Now I have to watch it again to, to ah! see that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Shannon also says uh, I have never heard him speak about Basket Case Three. Would love to hear everything he has to say about the experience on Basket Case Three. There's a so we had we had a, a suit uh, 
an in-house suit uh, on the production to keep track of us. And at the end of the first week, uh, they have a formula. So many pages of scripts should equal so many minutes of screen. Um, so at the end of the first week, he came to us. Uh, We're ahead. We've got to cut something. So Frank made a choice, cut a scene, and we went on. You know, The last week of filming, the suit's back in a panic. We're short. We need one more scene. Well, by now we've lost the location for that scene that we trashed. So, and they didn't want Frank to write something new. That's the other. He said, no, no. So, of course, that night he writes a scene. And in the morning we go to the, I think it's the sheriff's office, the police station that we trash. And, uh, I don't know. We get there in the middle of the afternoon and I spend the afternoon and the evening pacing the parking lot, trying to learn the lines while they set up the, the lights and the cameras moves and all that stuff. And that's the scene where uh, I come running down the hill talking about a shoe store, I think. And I discovered that Lyle's been shot. That's the scene that we added. Okay. All right. So, all right, you mentioned Basky Case 4. So I've heard you say this before. You've, you've had a treatment for this for years now, Case 4. Is it, is it still, you still have that? Are you still working on it? What's I am, the deal, Kevin? I am, Let's get this thing made. <laughs> I, I would love to do a fourth film, uh, it, it, but it, would, it wouldn't be basket case for it would be the twins as they are now today but mind you now there's 11 baby belials who are now in their mid-20s yeah. <laughs> yeah. and their associated partners and uh all craziness is about yeah i was so i watched that last night but i was sort of dozing off at, during the third one um <laughs> I heard, I thought there were twelve babies. Did one of the did one of the children get killed? Did yeah. They, um, oh, okay. Because right. I daughter, heard you say eleven. The daughter, when she's shot, sits on one. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, you, you know about there's crowdfunding and all this stuff now, right? Like Kickstarter, GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get this thing made, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to do that. Um, I. I because and and part of it, <clears throat> we've always had Belial has a, a little rubber thing that we tried to animate. Um, with the technology that we have available now, I would play Belial, and we'd make Belial a real character instead of just this little rabid thing. Yeah, and, uh, I think that would that combined yeah. with uh, Belial's anatomy, I think becomes very twisted there is something special though about the 80s uh practical effects that are very near and dear to my heart yep me too and i think i'd rather see him as a practical effect in part four than a cgi character just from my personal experiences is that that's a personal thing somebody takes a lot of time making that like 
to me, I think part four, I really do think there should be a practical effect to him. But I mean, there could be some CGI effects to it. But if it's from the 80s and it's moving forward to the 70s, it's got to be practical, in my opinion, because it's so personal. Well, Kevin, you are talking about it. I mean, this would be all practical effects, right? Mostly, mostly. But there would be uh, some CGI that would allow me to play Belial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. It would be well, kind of uh, a combination, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'd be I'd be all right with the combination. I, yeah. I don't want all CGI Avengers, you know. But no, I, no, I need no. I need the combination. Well, that's <laughs> the trouble, you know. Uh, for example, when a guitarist gets a new effects pedal, that's all they <laughs> yeah. play with. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for months. Yeah, it's kind of like when Eddie Van Halen discovered the keyboard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> little by little, once you get used to that effect, then it starts to fall back into the place of an effect. You, mm-hmm. you don't use an effect for the whole movie. Man. You know? Yeah. Well, Kevin, if you want uh, if you want any help uh, getting this crowdfunded, let Ray and I know. Uh, we'd love to help you out, and I think I think. Man, with the with the cult following that these movies have, and with Joe Bob, you know, behind uh, Joe Bob would definitely be behind a, a part four, I'm sure. Uh, especially with you Indeed. writing it, we'd have to get him in it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, man, this has been great, uh, Ray. Did I miss anything? I-, I think we've covered everything that we intended to. But if there's anything we missed. I would love for you to come back and tell us what we missed on another episode. Absolutely. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Thanks, man. And please, once again, tell everyone where they can find you. KevinVanH.com. <laughs> Scrolling across the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thanks so much, man. This has been a blast. My yes, pleasure. Sir. Thank you. Hey, this is Ron. Do you like movies? Hey. This is Ragnar. Y'all like alcohol? Hey guys, this is Stu. Do you like punishments? Hey everybody, I'm Chase. You guys, do you guys like alcohol poisoning? And this is Lenny from Barrel Age Flicks. Sobriety is so overrated. Welcome to Season 3, 2023. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. See you there.